Let me invite you, if you would, grab your copy of God's Word. You can turn with me to uh, the book of 1 John, and uh, we're in 1 John as we continue our study and talking about knowing Jesus and knowing uh, all of who He is. We've seen so much along the way, and if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one out of the pew rack in front of you. You can turn to page 183, or excuse me, 1,083, and uh, you'll be there, and uh, you can follow along with us. But as we come into this passage and we think of where we are and talking about all of what God is doing and all of what God has done, uh, it is interesting just how much our our routines of life are very revealing. Uh, More so, I uh, I would suggest, than even the big moments. It's in the routine of life that we figure out and we really demonstrate what matters to us most, right? We can talk all we want about uh, it matters to us that we want to be healthy and fit, but if we eat donuts every day and, you know, don't ever exercise or anything, our routines are telling a different story, right? And all these things, so much of the patterns of our life really reflect the enduring importance of what we find is most significant. That's also true for all of us who are believers, who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that it's not just this fleeting moment of faith, of trusting in Him once, but this enduring wonder of what He's doing in our hearts and lives in a way that brings us both assurance and that leads us into the wonder of what it means to practice abiding in Him. So grab your copy of God's Word and read with me, if you will, in 1 John chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 4. We're going to read down through verse uh, 10, and then we will unpack that along the way. So 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 4, this is what we read. It says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. And Father, we pray that by the work of your spirit at work through your word, Father, that you would shine the light of your truth upon our own lives individually. And Father, that we would see you in all of your splendid holiness. And that we would be humbled before you. And Father, that we would recognize the desperation of our need for you. And would have the hope and assurance of being born again in Christ, of being your child and belonging to you. Father, assure our hearts in this moment now by the truth of Christ. Lord, we ask it all in Jesus' mighty name and for his glory. Amen. So as we come to this passage of Scripture, and obviously a very serious passage of Scripture 
It's always helpful to think of where we've been, and we've talked all about God being light and the way in which he has revealed himself, and we've talked about Jesus as both our propitiation and our advocate. We've talked about all these family reminders and what it means to abide in him, and even talking about preparing for his arrival and all of what that means, and he's really continuing to unpack what it looks like to live a Christian life, that there really is some measure of distinction in abiding in Jesus and that it's to be our practice in doing so. Which is why he dives right in here in verse 4 and he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Now it's very helpful for us to unpack what he's talking about when he's talking about a practice of sinning. Because if you just sort of break it down within the Greek text, you talk about just this pattern of doing things continuously. It's a routine. It's ongoing. It's continuous. And we all have these things in our lives. We all have these patterns. Maybe you get out of bed and the first thing you do is you sort of one-eye crawl your way over to the coffee pot in order to get things going so that you can get the rest of your day going. Maybe you've got some other pattern for your lunchtime. Maybe you've got patterns for your bedtime. We all have these little routines. And for so much of us, so much of our practice and the things that we do really encompass all of our lives. And what he's talking about here in this practice of sinning is that this practice of ongoing, habitual, continual sin without any repentance whatsoever. If there's no brokenness, if there's no sorrow over your sin, if there's no desire for holiness, if there's nothing about breaking God's law and sinning against Him that bothers you, you're practicing lawlessness. And in fact, it gets much worse in the way in which he describes this. This is very different from being prodigal. Many of us have had prodigal seasons where you just sort of go off in this pattern of the wilderness, but there is a sustained conviction that exists there and God draws you back. What is being described here is very different. It's the whole idea of doing whatever you want, and it's like, I don't care what God has said. I don't care what he said about anything. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to make up my own rules, and I'm going to build my life on my own declarations. Now, that's so much of what goes on around us, isn't it? I mean, we can unpack this to an infinite degree, if you wanted to, in all manners of not only sexual depravity, but we can talk about pride, but we can talk about building your life on covetousness or the whole notion of unforgiveness or lying. This routine of unrepentant sin is very revealing. He says everyone who practices, makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Now, God has been very clear about what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false. And the fact of the matter is our submission to Him and what He says is right and true is a reminder and a declaration to us that, and a declaration to Him that we believe He knows better than we do. And it's an acknowledgement that sin does have devastating consequences to real life. There's so, I mean, this whole notion of having no, no boundaries whatsoever, having no guidance, that's not freedom. That's a situation where nothing works. If you had no boundaries in a football game and no line markers along the way, the game wouldn't even make sense. If there were no rules whatsoever, you couldn't even play because everyone would just do what was right in their own eyes and everybody would be using a different set of rules. That's not only true in sports, that's true of the economy. 
That's also true in spiritual things, isn't it? That's true in families. It's true in marriages. It's true in life itself. This whole notion of casting off all restraint is not freedom. It's in fact bondage. It's chaos and it's darkness and it's very isolating. And it, what it is is ultimately embracing hostility against the lawgiver himself. Which is why he goes on to say, sin is lawlessness. That sin itself is worse than we think. We can quote the verses like, oh yeah, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, okay. And just treat it like it's no big deal. No, sin is lawlessness. It's like spitting in the face of the one against whom we've sinned. The one who gave the law. And that biblically speaking, lawlessness, everywhere you find it, is associated with Satan himself. And it's ruinous to every aspect of life. And it's as though even in one verse we're being told here, take a look at your own life and the patterns that exist in there. He is not saying that a believer will never sin. In fact, if you remember in 1 John 1.8, he said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The question is, when you do sin, what do you do? You celebrate it? Make a flag out of it and wave it around? Or do you do what is said in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness? And it's like right out of this weighty moment in verse 4, we are reminded here Of the wonder of what it means to know why Christ came. And that in practicing abiding in Him, we are practicing knowing why He came and fixing our eyes and our minds there. He says, verse 5, you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. It's like, brothers and sisters in Christ, family of the faith, you recipients of the gospel, you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, remember what we know. He appeared, He came to take away sins. And knowing why He came and what He came to remove should affect the way in which we approach the routines and practices of our lives, should it not? He appeared as in He was revealed in His mission. And you can even think about, you know, John the Baptist, and even as Je- at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, you remember what John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is why he came in his incarnation, fully God, fully man, come in the flesh to live in perfect righteousness, to die on the cross for our sin, to be buried, and three days later rise from the dead. That's why he came, and that's why we live. He came to take away our sins, to remove them. Like a surgeon. Wouldn't it be awful to go to a surgeon's office and be like, look, this is a, re- this is a really big problem. It really needs to be dealt with. But I'm just going to leave it there. What would you do? You'd be like, it's time for a different surgeon. I mean, you can think about this in other ways. You can think of, of the purchase of a house that's just falling to pieces and ruined. You don't just leave it that way. You restore it. See, Jesus didn't just come to forgive us of our sins and then leave the filth in our lives. 
He cares too much to leave us how he found us. And so through faith in Jesus, our sin is forgiven and we're washed and we're cleansed and we're purified and we're rescued from the punishment and the power and one day from the presence of sin. And to willfully and unrepentantly practice what Jesus came to take away is to despise Jesus himself. When you know what it costs, you take it seriously. That's why we're always on our children, right? You get in the car and you know you're, you got your nice car and you got it all cleaned up and you got, they're in the back seat and they're plowing through goldfish and it's like half of it's not even making it into their mouth and it's all falling on the floor. It's like, wait, we pay for this thing. You got to take care of it because when you know how much it costs, you want to take care of it. It's the way we are with our houses. Are we like that with our spiritual life? Have we forgotten what it cost? That our sin was so bad it cost the Son of God to come and die in our place. Our only hope of salvation is Him. And what He's done, He came to take it away. To take away all that lust and adultery and all the sort of pornographic desires that people have, all that pride and lying and covetousness and idolatry, all the disobedience to parents. He came to remove all of that, to take it away. And then in understanding Him as Savior and Lord, we're understanding that not only does He save you and you have faith in Him, but He transforms your entire life. Because in Him, as you abide in Him, in Him there is no sin. And so you enjoy His grace and you grow in His likeness. And then in Him you find your identity. That you're in Christ. That you know Him as Savior and Lord. And it's like the more you abide in him, it's just like John 15. The more you abide in him, the more you see him bear out fruit in your life that you never even thought remotely possible. What you do in your life matters. But what do the patterns of your own life individually reveal now? Who are you abiding in? Who do you believe knows best? Because in verse 6 he says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And again, the whole notion of abiding in Christ affects our life. What you believe shapes how you're going to live. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. He is not talking about here so that Christians achieve some level of Christian perfectionism where they become sinless. No, the only sinless one is Jesus Christ himself. But he is talking about the whole notion of practicing in unrepentance what God came to save you from by sending his own son to die in your place. He's not saying you never sin. He's not saying you don't struggle with the same sin, but it is a struggle and there is repentance. And that if you care nothing for sin while professing to know Jesus, your life is telling a different story than your mouth. Because no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him Seen him in the sense in which it's described in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, where the Apostle Paul says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
or known Him as Savior, as Lord, as the one who died on the cross for your sin and rose from the dead, the one who sanctifies you and shapes you and teaches you and grows you and guides you and leads you, that in some sense we can talk about all these aspects of the glory of who Jesus is, and if you know Him, you'll see some aspect of it come up in your life. doesn't mean it always happens as quickly as you want, but eventually it will bear out. See, what we're being led to is having some knowledge of the assurance of knowing Christ. And then in practicing abiding in Jesus, what we're recognizing is that following Christ and walking with Him in all the daily details of life and all those little things that we maybe don't think matter as much, just saying every moment is for Him. Everything about my life is for Him. Whether I eat or drink, it's all to the glory of God. Everything being done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to the glory of God the Father, all aspects of every notion, of every routine, and every pattern that you have in life matters. And then as you abide in Him in all these little things that we think are so trivial and insignificant, you'll find a weight of assurance in your life that you never even thought possible. Know why He came and abide in Him. And this gives us great clarity as we move forward. Because we must practice abiding in Christ and have the assurance of whose you are. Because verse 7 says this, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. You can feel the kindness in these words, little children. It's the same word that was used in chapter 2, verse 26. Little children, my beloved dear ones. Let no one deceive you. Which the mere fact that he brings that up is an acknowledgement of the fact that there are people out there trying to trick you. To deceive you. To lead you into paths where there is no assurance. Here's a point of clarity, brothers and sisters. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. He's not saying that we're saved by works here. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's a free gift of God so that no one may boast. But genuine salvation has evidence. When Jesus gives life, there's proof that life has come. And this whole notion of practicing righteousness, of doing what is right, no matter the cost, no matter the context, in truth, in speech, in your prayer, in word, in worship, in morality, that when we talk about the resurrection power of Christ at work in our hearts and lives, we're talking about He who raised the dead. If He who raises the dead is at work within us, wouldn't you think that there'd be some evidence of that? Would we dare deny that? See, this is a reminder. Jesus is not decor on an otherwise degenerate life. 
You don't just put a Jesus poster on the wall and say, hey, there he is. I'm going to do whatever I want because he's gracious and he's going to forgive me. And I'm, It doesn't matter anyway because he died for me. No, you better not do that. You don't use the grace of God as reason to sin. That's actually evidence that you don't know him. Jesus is not a garnish. He himself is the feast. He's not trivial. We don't just cast him aside and say, I could do with or without this. No, he's the righteous one. He's our Savior. And everyone who, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. It's the whole picture of the evidence of his influence. It's him at work in us. It's him working himself in his presence by his spirit in our hearts, working that out in us. Evidence of his influence. I mean, we can look back across the span of our own lives and those who we spent the most time with, maybe it was your parents, maybe it was, you know, grandparents or or whomever else, and you can see in your own tastes and preferences now that they shaped those things when you were growing up, right? And we'll even talk about it. We'll gather together and be like, oh yeah, you'll, you'll eat something and remind you of somebody else. Well, I like this because somebody else introduced it to me. I like this because they taught me how to like it. They taught me how to eat this. Would we expect anything less from knowing Jesus? That it shapes our desires and our wants and our hungers and our longings and everything else? And that his righteousness is pouring out in us and so we're practicing what he is as he is living within us? But the other side is also true. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. This unrepentant pursuit of the deeds of darkness, of clearly what God has said is wrong and wicked and evil, he says whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The devil is real. And he is not dressed up like a hot tamale carrying around a pitched fork and a forked little tail hanging off of his rear end. He appears as an angel of light. He's deceiving and deceitful. His method and modus operandi is to trick you and trap you in every which way that he can. And as we look at our lives, you start to see evidences of whose you are. Jesus brought this up specifically, didn't he? Remember in John chapter 8, verse 44. In speaking to the Pharisees, he says, You are of the Father, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. The identity of an unbeliever is a child of Satan. Now that is not a politically correct thing to say. That's an uncomfortable thing to say, but I didn't write it. God did. And it comes in a variety of fashions and a variety of forms. Now, you can open up a bag of Skittles and you can dump, all, dump them all out on the table and you can see the reds and the greens and the whatever else, but the fact of the matter is they're all, they're all Skittles in the end. It's just a wide variety of the same thing. There are all manners of varieties of unbelief. There's atheism, there's being agnostic, there's self-righteousness, 
There's just sort of creating your own Jesus and saying, well, I'll take what I want out of him and I'll do something else. And really, that's just the essence of false teaching. There's other religions and all of that. He's saying, look, look at whose you are. He says, you're in practicing and living your life like this. The, the devil's been sinning from the beginning. He's been at this a while in his pride and his self-righteousness and self-exaltation and all these questions of, did God really say, ultimately, to whom do you belong? What assurance can we have? Where are we left? Because this seems so hard. Look at verse 9. Excuse me, verse, middle of verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Where's our hope? It's not in us. It's in Jesus. Look at why he came. Look at the reason why he came. The reason why he showed up to destroy the works of the devil. To loosen the bonds and the shackles that we find ourselves in. To set us free from the power and the penalty and the presence of sin. That the devil came to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus came to give life. To call us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. To expose our sin and call us to repentance and faith. To believe in him and enjoy the benefits of him. It's a gracious rescue. And it ought to stir our affections. Because as we look across our own lives individually. Where the devil has sown so much destruction. Jesus destroys destruction by his redemption. Isn't that amazing? He redeems and rescues lives that have otherwise been entirely thrown away. He saves the unsavable and loves the unlovable. Jesus destroys destruction. He breaks the bondage and leads captivity captive. He defeated death himself itself by rising from the dead. The devil didn't make you do it. You're responsible for your own sin. But the devil did tempt you. All those whispers, he'd never love you. All those whispers, you're unsavable. All those whispers, you're too far gone. All those whispers, condemned, unclean. And Jesus walks right into the middle of it in all of the grandeur of his holiness and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will have rest for your souls. Jesus destroys devastation, gives life in the face of death, and we ought to expect victorious proof of Jesus' power. And then as we look into our lives and we say, look at what God has done. Look at how he found me reprobate and angry and mad about everything, and I couldn't get my own way and so arrogant, and I thought I knew everything and everything else, and just entirely broke me of my sin, brought me to himself, and look at what he's done. Look at all the testimonies of his goodness and grace all the way across life itself. When you look at life that way and you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you can say, look at what God has done. And there's such great assurance in the evidence he has provided. It's amazing. He says in verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. See, our assurance rests in what God has done. Do you need to be born again? Yes. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but in Christ, we're made alive. 
saved, alive, cleansed. Now when someone is born again, there's evidence. Just like when you were born the first time, there was a lot of evidence of that. So you don't continue in this pattern, in this routine of unrepentant sin. You don't build your life upon the practice of doing what you know God has saved you out of. He says, for God's seed abides in the believer. He can't keep on doing this because he's been born of God. That if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He has prepared beforehand that we should walk in. When you're born of God, you can tell a difference. God's children reflect Him. But see, in so many aspects of our own lives, we can also see that what we, we do things on the basis of who we are. We've lived our whole lives categorizing one another in all these different various forms. You can think about it in society. People shape their lives around, you know, politics or some sort of cause that they're throwing themselves into or some sort of shared interest, right? You can think about when you were a student or for all the students in here, right? You've got the, the sort of sports people, and so your whole identity is around football or baseball or basketball or whatever else, soccer, right? Your whole identity is just consumed by these things. Maybe it's music, right? Maybe you're the punk rock kid. Maybe you're the country kid. Maybe you're the whatever kid. And you, you know, you build your, your identity out of those things, and you can see it reflected even the way in which people dress. What we do is actually a reflection of who we believe we are. You can see this as an employee, as, a, as you pursue careers and aims and in all your personal life. You can see it in singleness and being married and widowhood as old and young and all the trips we go on, vacations and all the things that we look forward to and all the things that you click that little up, thumbs up thing on social media. All these little things that we do is a reflection of who we are. And who you are is ultimately about whose you are. So look at your own life. Whose are you? That's where the Apostle John brings this. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He's like, here's how you tell the difference. We like to know how to tell the difference. We like to be able to pick up the little children's magazine, and when you see, you know, these two things are not alike, you're like, I'm going to figure this out. No matter how old you get, it never gets old. We like to be able to tell the difference. We're being told quite clearly here, Here's how to tell the difference. To know the distinctions. To know the distinctions, and really it starts with that there are only two options. You're either a child of God, or as he says it here, children of the devil. 
And in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, we're told in John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, the name of Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's the only way to become a child of God, to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That's the only way. All other avenues lead to the same devilish destination. How do you tell the difference? Look at what he says. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. If the evidence of righteousness of God's work in you is not present, then you're not born again. If there's no notion of caring anything about what he says and following him as Lord in actual reality, you don't really know him. You remember the Great Commission, right? Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But if you're really his disciple, what are you going to do? You're going to learn all those things that he has commanded you. Remember, teaching them to observe all those things that I have commanded you. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Why is that in there? Because we need to know. And it's evidence of our assurance of having him, that we would even care. I want to know what you have to say about my family. I want to know what you have to say about my singleness. I want to know what you have to say about my parenting. I want to know what you have to say about the way in which I make decisions, the way in which I pursue wisdom in all these areas of life. That the character of Christ is meant to come out. Look at the patterns of your own life. Is truthfulness there? Is a sense of grace there? Are we forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us? Are we loving? Are we doing good even to those who hate you and praying for those who mistreat you? Are we diving deep into his word because we care what he has to say? Is there any sense of repentance when we fail to do what is right and God convicts us? But not only does he say righteousness, the other point is nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now that's a strong understanding of the significance of the church, isn't it? Because he's talking, he's using the word brother as brothers and sisters in Christ. Of knowing who you are and then looking at all those who also know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and looking for opportunities to love them, to love those who are also born again, who are partners with you in the gospel and that we love with encouragement and we love with accountability and we love with our time and we love with our talents and we love with our care and we love with our compassion. But if you don't care anything about anyone else other than yourself, look out. If all the aspects of being a part of the body of Christ is really only about you, you have a serious problem. This is the place in which we exercise the care and love for one another, that we lift one another up and meet one another's needs and bear one another's burdens and love one another. Why? Because we all deserve it? No, none of us deserve it. Because Jesus did it for us and we want to turn around and pour it out into somebody else's life. Love and righteousness, plain evidence. Why would that be the case? Because that, would, that is only by grace that this would ever happen. Only God could do this. These are things that in our, left to our own sinful state, we would never care anything about. 
Left to our own sinful state, we want our own standard of right and wrong. We don't care anything about what God has to say. And left to our own state, we are profoundly self-centered and selfish, and we don't care about anybody else's life. But in Christ, we care about what, he's ha- what he has said, what he has revealed, why that matters, and why we ought to pursue it. And we care about loving one another, because if Jesus loves them, we better. And so when you look at your life, it's like he's, he's pleading. He's, it's like he's down on the level, like a father with his children, getting before him, saying, little children, let no one deceive you. And maybe even in reading this, perhaps the evidence of your life has brought you not to the assurance of hope, but to the certainty of condemnation and conviction. That if you were to die right now, you wouldn't have Jesus. You'd have hell. And you know it. And if in the seriousness of the moment, God has made that clear for you, God in his grace has a message for you. That in this moment now is another opportunity to repent and believe. The mere fact that you would care anything about sin and sinning against a righteous and holy God is evidence of the Holy Spirit at work. So turn away from your sin and trust in Christ. Because it's true, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have gone our own way. Spit in the eye of the lawgiver. Said, I know better than you. I'm going to do my own thing and I don't care what you have to say. And yet God in love still sent his son to live in perfect righteousness, to be tempted in every way as we are and yet be without sin, to go to the cross and to substitute himself for us where he would die enduring the full outpouring of the wrath of God against the sin of all who would repent and believe so that through faith in him, crucified and resurrected, you would have forgiveness and everlasting life and that you would know everlasting life right now in your life today. We ought to expect what God purchases, He restores. How is that on display in your own life? How ought you respond to Him today? May the clarity of the moment and the clarity of the Word lead us to a clarity of response. Come to Jesus. Have forgiveness. Have life. And enjoy being a child of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are amazing. And Father, we thank you for uncomfortable truths that stir us to joyful realities. Give us a greater horror of sin. Give us a greater picture in our own minds of the cost of what Christ endured for us that our lives would greater reflect His righteousness and His love. And Father, in this moment now, for any for whom you have brought to conviction of their own sin, 
that they know if they were to die in this moment, they would not have you. They would be condemned by you. In this moment now, Father, open their eyes to see the only hope and the only way of salvation is Jesus Christ himself. Father, they would cast off all their self-righteousness, all the pride, all the backlog and baggage of all the wrong things and all the whispers of all the lies that have been thrown their way. And Father, may they experience the full wonder of what it means for Jesus to destroy the works of the devil. May they have forgiveness and everlasting life as they run to Jesus who is the light of the world. Father, in this moment now, may we respond in genuine joy and faith in Jesus Christ, our only hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.